This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome. This episode of Science Friction, it's a dog's breakfast. Meet me, Harold, the lovable kind of dog people always do a little more for than they have to, like feeding me gravy train. With a meaty bone or two, some chicken legs on the side, a cup of crunchy kibble... This all sounds like culinary heaven to my old hound. But is your dog's dinner plate costing more than dollars? My dog's bigger than your dog. My dog's faster than yours. My dog's better because he gets cameration. My dog's better than yours. Hi, Natasha Mitchell joining you. And my co-pilot on Science Friction in this episode is Joe Kahn. Hi, Joe. Hello. I think we need to declare a conflict of interest in this story, don't we? We do, yes. What's yours? Well, mine's a one-year-old troublemaker with a passion for snoozing. Mine is a 12-year-old girl mongrel who is utterly obsessed with belly rubs. Okay, that's out of the way. This story starts with... Greg Oaken from the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm a geographer. I've done a lot of different kinds of work there. I study geomorphology, I study fire, I study soils, I study plants. And he's also an insomniac. I was literally lying in bed one night and I couldn't sleep. But he wasn't uh, counting sheep, was he, Joe? No, he found himself counting something rather unexpected. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when I did calculations. This is, you know, one of the hazards of being a, a professor. You sometimes can't turn things off. So what was he counting? Well, actually... It started with chooks. Some people in Los Angeles are starting to have chickens, and for some reason I started ruminating on this idea of having chickens. But what he was really thinking about was food. Oh, aren't we all? I love food. Yeah, me too. And how (laughs) how cool it was to have pets that could actually produce food for you. But he was also thinking about what chooks love to eat. And that they were vegetarians as well. That just got me thinking that we have all these other pets that are, in fact, not only not vegetarian, but required to eat a lot of food, and a lot of that food is meat, Um, and there's a lot of them. Now, Joe, there's more than just a lot of cats and dogs. That's right. When you try and put the numbers to this, one estimate has it that there's a whopping 163 million cats and dogs in America. That's in America. In Australia, I've heard that that's nearly 9 million cats and dogs. That's in a population of 24 million humans. And that was only the start of Greg Oaken's number crunching. So I got up and sort of ran the rough numbers and realised that this was actually a pretty interesting story with some pretty big numbers potentially. What Greg Oaken wanted to find out was, given more of us are caring about where our food comes from and the environmental toll of that food production. For example, how far those bananas travelled so you can buy them in winter. Yeah, or does your favourite ice cream have palm oil in it that's wrecking the home of orangutans? And what about the carbon emissions associated with that juicy steak? Well, that's what's on our dinner plates. But what about our pets? Somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the impact on water, land, fossil fuel use, pesticides and so on being ascribable to dogs and cats. I find that figure actually unbelievable, Joe. I mean, our humble doggies and moggies are responsible for a third of the environmental impacts of meat production, really? I know. The numbers Greg Oaken came up with are mind-blowing. And here's another way of putting it. If American dogs were cats were their own country, they'd be the fifth largest meat consumer in the world after Russia, Brazil, the United States and China. 
Okay, I do actually like the sound of a country just full of dogs. Not cats so much. Oh. Sorry, cat lovers. Oh, poor kitties. I know, I'm biased. But I'd definitely visit the dog nation. But all this might be sorry news for ecologically conscientious pet owners. My friends that I've talked to about it when I was doing it, they said, oh boy, those pet owners are not going to like you very much. We're used to hearing about the environmental impacts of our cars and our eating habits and other things, but this is a little bit of a sacred cow. You know, there's an increasing trend, I think, in the U.S. and also worldwide of the sort of humanization of pets, where they are no longer pets, they become members of the family. Just an ordinary dog, till he becomes your dog. And then you want to do a little more for him. So you feed him gravy train. It's a little more than a dog food, more than just something to eat. Has more nourishment than a dog food has to have to keep him... We'll come to just how Greg Oaken estimated those big numbers in just a moment, but just working out what's in your pet's food is hard enough, let alone its environmental impact. Hello! Oh, you look like a ghostbuster. I love it. Come in. How are you? Sorry, I've just been for a run. I'm, I'm meeting fun. Michelle Rasool. She's a vet in the northeastern suburbs of Melbourne, and she's seen firsthand how our preoccupation with what we're feeding our pets is changing. People are, you know, becoming a lot more conscious about what they feed their pets, and it's not as simple as looking on a bag and seeing that, oh, yeah, great, this is, you know, for instance, RSPCA approved or something like that. It's really not clear to a lot of people whether they're dog food contains just byproducts or actual kind of meat. Um, there's not a lot of clarity in the labelling. And I certainly think there's a really big difference between, say, something you might buy at a supermarket that's kind of your home brand or kind of bargain equivalent or something that you might spend a lot of money on. And I'm not even convinced that there might be much of a difference in, in terms of maybe where that's sourced from. It's really not clear. But I think he's uh, 95% Kelpie. Yeah. He with, looks a bit of, with a bit with maybe a fraction of rotty with the ears, I'm not sure. But. Down at the local dog park, how are people here making sense of what's oh, in their yeah. pet's food? Read the label and I have a look through at the um, nutritional value, different types of fat-soluble vitamins and minerals that will assist development and sight and great energy production and vitality and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> That's what I look for yeah. to feed her. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, we have to take into account what our dogs like and what they don't because it doesn't yeah. matter how good it is if they won't eat it. <laughs> For example, we bought one very well-known brand of food that's not processed at all, uncooked yeah. food, but um, she wouldn't eat it at all. Naughty dog. What's happened to the old days when dogs just got our leftovers and the occasional bone, Joe? I bet mine wishes that she could still get the leftovers. <laughs> I think I'm the fussy one when it comes to deciding what she gets to eat. And that's kind of the point of this story. Exactly. And so back to Professor Greg Oaken. How did he figure out that one third of the environmental impact of meat in America can be attributed to pet food? So what I did was I took a pet food, I looked at the ingredients. It's everything from bone meal to chicken meal to corn meal. You know, some of them have various vegetables, some of them have various broths. There's egg, there's fish. A lot of it is byproducts from the human production chain. Greg started by scrutinising the ingredients in hundreds of popular pet food products. We can then say, OK, well, I can convert, let's say, bone meal. I can convert that to the amount of protein, fat and carbohydrates in it. And I can do the same with 
fish and I can do the same with corn and, and wheat and beets and all kinds of other food that people put in dog and cat food. The next step was to figure out what proportion of calories in these products comes from meat. And the numbers are, are pretty interesting. You know, about 33% of the calories that uh, dogs and cats collectively eat are derived from animals. But, uh, you know, in comparison, uh, humans in the U.S., at least, according to the USDA, get about 20% of their calories from animal-derived products. So if we take the estimated 163 million pets in the U.S. that are getting a third of their calories from meat... It's huge. That's equal to the daily dietary intake of the country of France. So it's quite a large number. Which comes at a cost. Livestock accounts for 70% of all agricultural land in the world and about 30% of all land. So it's quite a significant land use impact. Who's this, Joe? This is Professor Stuart White. He's the director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. But perhaps more significantly, because of the ruminant animals and the generation of methane, I mean, ruminant animals such as cows and um, sheep discharge methane or they burp, in fact. Yes, burping cows. And methane is a very, very strong greenhouse gas. That's at the heart of our climate change problem. And so in CO2 equivalent, it's quite significant. The estimates are that it's at least 20% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. So it's quite significant and growing. It's about more than carbon emissions, though. It's about large swathes of land used to produce livestock. And obviously that land use, the growth in meat consumption and particularly the growth in grain production to feed livestock, it's a relatively inefficient way to produce calories and protein, uh, is to convert plants into meat. So that's one of the issues that we have just mathematically is the growth in meat production creates an even greater growth in land requirements. And then there's the scale of production of meat worldwide. As we industrialise our agriculture, then of course we need to apply more pesticides, more herbicides to grow the plants to feed to animals, but we also need to apply a greater level of antibiotics. So over half of the antibiotics used in the world are for livestock, high water use, high oil use for farming energy inputs, fertiliser and greenhouse emissions from the fertiliser, not just from the animals. So if we come back to pets, Greg Oaken has crunched the numbers and come up with the greenhouse gas emissions that are caused by the meat they eat, in America at least. We found that uh, dog and cat animal product consumption is responsible for about 64 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent. CO2 equivalent is just a measure which takes into account other greenhouse gases like methane and nitrous oxide. And uh, just to put that in context, that's about a year's worth of driving for 13.6 million cars. So take the greater Los Angeles area and uh, all of the cars driving in the greater Los Angeles area for a year that's about the impact of non-CO2 greenhouse gases that dogs and cats are responsible for. So one interesting thing is you could take American dogs and cats and treat them as their own country and then see how many calories they eat that are derived from animals and compare those to other countries. And if American dogs or cats were their own country, they'd be the fifth largest meat consumer in the world after Russia, Brazil, the United States and China. Speaking of the rapidly industrialising China, the world's most populous nation with the world's highest 
carbon dioxide emissions at 30%. Well, it looks like pet ownership is on the rise there too. Not only are people getting more pets, people all over the world, as their standards of living rise, tend to eat more meat. So in China, South America, East Asia, generally we're seeing a high growth, slower growth in India, mainly because of cultural, religious reasons. So historically it was a luxury in many cultures and therefore, as people can afford it, of course, they then see it as a sign of affluence. Bing Tao Su is from China's Hebei province and she's just finished her PhD at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. And she's tried to do the seemingly impossible. In a nation of over a billion people, she's managed to put numbers to China's cats and dogs. Really? And their environmental impact, which she calls, it gets better, their ecological paw print. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's cute. There are around 27 million of companion dogs in China and uh, 58 million of companion cats in China. Wow, get your head around that. There's one pet in China for every 15 people. And Bing Tao Su says that's probably an underestimate as well because she hasn't included strays or rural dogs in her calculations. And the only meat she accounted for in their diet is chicken. I just used the chicken and the cereal. Yeah, I assume that the protein from chicken, the other thing is from cereal. And yeah, according to this equation, I calculated the final ecological paw print. A pet's ecological paw print includes the amount of land and resources required to produce the meat they eat. So what did Bing Tao Su find? We found that on average, if people have a large dog, the ecological paw print of one large dog equals to 10 people's ecological footprint. So that means that the diet of one large dog in China has the same environmental impact as what 10 people eat in China. Doesn't that figure sound a little odd to you, Joe? Doesn't that mean that pet food has 10 times the impact of human food in China? Yeah, I'm still wrapping my head around that. It, it seems to suggest that Chinese companion animals eat a whole lot more meat than their humans do. One thing's for sure, pet ownership is on the rise as well. Due to the booming economy and the improving living standards, more and more people do prefer to own a dog and a cat. You know, they prefer to pay more attention to their dog and cat's health, and they prefer to give their animals more, you know, the higher nutritional food, like the animal products. And I think maybe for some owners, even though they know their animals have the environmental impacts, but maybe they don't care because they really show a great concern for their animals and they really want to give the good food for their animals because they regard their animals as family members and friends. A lot of people, their initial reaction to this might be, but hang on a sec, don't dogs and cats only eat the waste of the meat industry, the offcuts, the bits that humans don't want? Did that come into your calculations or are you finding that there's a shift in pet food where that's not such the case anymore? This gets back to the idea of the humanization of pets, right? People see their dog and they see their dog as a, a little wolf and they think, well, my wolf needs steak. And so they buy foods that have higher quality meat in it than some of the other brands. And by higher quality, I mean more appetizing to humans. 
You know, I take issue with the question a little bit, though, because I've traveled all over the world and I know people eat a lot of different things all over the world. And so, you know, there's the question of what people might want to eat and then there's the question of what they could eat. So, yes, it's true. There's a lot of waste from our meat production process because there's cuts that people don't want to eat and there's awful and there's other things that a lot of people find unappetizing and therefore they end up in dog and cat food, but they are nutritious. And unless they're from badly diseased animals or like bone meal, basically just are not edible to humans, they are essentially things in many cases that could be made edible. And so, you know, I find that this argument that their impacts are are obviated by the fact that they eat the byproducts, that's premised on the idea that these byproducts couldn't be made to be edible by people. In many cases, that's actually not true. The whole pet food industry is changing. It's quite hard to get insight into this, obviously, in terms of ingredients. Sustainability researcher Professor Stuart White. So we're getting higher value, higher quality pet food, which means a premium pet food, which means it's more likely to be adding to the amount of meat that's needing to be produced in order to provide that. And what that means is it's adding to what is already a significant impact as the number of pets grows and as the food consumption grows. And in fact, food consumption amongst pets and pet obesity, if we can call it that, is actually becoming quite an issue. Yes, so directly underneath me with no room to move, I have my Border Collie, Harriet. He's about seven and a half at the moment. We're back in the clinic of vet Michelle Rasool. Basically every kind of trend that we see in people kind of slowly filters down into pets. So I walked into a pet shop yesterday and saw Pete Evans's face on some dog food. Yes, Pete Evans, who pushes the paleo diet despite questionable science, has now turned to pet food. There's definitely a push to being more conscious about what we're feeding, which I think is really good in some ways, you know, being aware of of the kind of different things that we might have been feeding over the years and maybe trying to optimise what's best for our pets. But I think there's also a lot of misinformation and maybe we don't even know what's best. I think, you know, if you were to ask kind of the experts, it's the same as in people, like what's the best diet? Well, it really depends what you're doing. You know, are you a greyhound couch potato or are you a border collie that's running, you know, 40Ks a week? And probably depending on that, there's going to be lots of things that are good for you and things that maybe are okay for an occasional treat and all that in between sort of research maybe suggests to us that pets really don't need, I guess, a different flavour of something every day. They don't kind of quite have taste things in the same way as us and they certainly don't need a lot of the things we give them, like in terms of, I guess, sweet things that they probably can't really taste very well. Dave Deary is part of this trend towards more human-grade meat in pet food. He runs a small family-owned pet food company in the Melbourne suburb of Roeville. Good quality meat and good quality vegetable. That's all they need. That's all they need. They don't need any more than that. Nothing else in there. Now that's the secret. This bad boy here is is the hardest working machine in the place. This grinds the birds, turns it into mince. It also is a mixing machine that will we put once we grind the meat, we put the meat back in there and our bowls of veggies, oh, and the veggies go in yeah, there and yeah. then it mixes all that up. Yeah. And that this is raw chicken with the veggies, bok choy, celery, capsicum, zucchini, cauliflower, pears, carrots and thyme, all crunched up to liquid, mixed in with the meat, and that's fed to our puppies. We have chicken, veg and bacon, chicken and sardines, chicken and sweet potato, chicken, rice and veg, 
because if I was to sit down to dinner, I wouldn't want the same dinner every single day. Have you, have you ever eaten your food? Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. It is human-grade chicken with human-grade veg cooked in a stainless steel pot. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, looking at that and thinking that it looks a bit like shepherd's pie mix makes me think, should we be saving it for humans instead of giving it to dogs? Why do we use the fresh instead of pet meat? Because our grower gives it to us for a good price. And when I present this to a, a customer, they can smell it, they can see it, they can see it's fresh. So we're not selling to the dog. We've got to get past the dog's two-legged friend first. The large ecological paw print of our pets that we've described in this episode is a lot to do with the choices we humans make. Greg Oaken again. You know, dogs have evolved with humans for something like the last 15,000 years, and they're, they're not wolves. They've evolved with us to eat a diet that's, that's actually quite similar to us. They're omnivores like we are. And so they don't um, necessarily need a lot of meat in their diet, some would argue none. Whereas cats, actually, they're obligate carnivores. And although the cat foods do have non-meat ingredients, they're certainly much higher meat content in cat foods. Is Greg getting controversial here and, and making the case that dogs at least could go vegetarian? I think he is. And vet Michelle Rasool has something to say about that. I often say, you know, if you wanted a vegan pet, you know, a rabbit or a guinea pig is a really good choice. Probably not a dog and almost certainly not a cat. You know, there's, I guess, a bit of a debate about there, but my personal opinion is that they probably need to have some sort of meat, if not to be 100% healthy, but probably to be happy, you know, to, to be kind of fulfilled in what they're doing. Do you think that the future of pet ownership is going to look different if people are able to sort of overcome this desire to feed their pets high quality meat products? You know, could there be a shift to feeding our pets meat alternatives, for example? You know, I've been informed of various commercial enterprises that are trying to produce high-protein meat substitutes that can be fed to dogs and cats and also to humans. And that would certainly make a big difference. We as a society make choices, and we as individuals in a society make choices. Those of us who are concerned about climate change consider that when we're thinking about what kind of car to buy. And I think insofar as people can, can be given this knowledge and care about these things, then they're choices that they could make. You know, I mean, if this is something somebody cares about, they're thinking about getting a new dog, maybe consider a small dog as opposed to a large dog, you know, or a hamster or something. What? Oh, no. No. That doesn't cut it. Yeah, no. No, 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 no. But look, I mean, if we're all being encouraged to reduce our meat intake for both health and environmental reasons. I'm wondering if there is anything we can do, we dog owners at least, to reduce their ecological paw print. What do you think? Well, Stuart White is imagining this different future. And I think if we move to a new world, we will see all animals as having a right to their own uh, existence. Obviously, if we eat less meat, we'll see a significant decline, a gradual but a significant decline in the number of domesticated animals, such as cows and pigs and sheep and so on. That will just happen through market forces, as it already is to some extent. And we'll probably see similar changes with pets. I think as people increase their awareness of some aspects of the pet industry, we'll probably see a, a more sensible and sensitive approach to pet ownership as well, while still meeting some of the needs that pets provide. 
I have no problem with dogs and cats. I grew up with them. Unfortunately, I ended up as an adult being allergic to them, so I can't have them. But uh, I'm not allergic to my fish. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, what's the but, environmental um, impact of fish food? Well, you know, it's not nothing. A lot of that fish food is is bycatch, actually. Mm. And so if we wanted to look at the impact on the oceans for bycatch that ends up either in people food and pet food, or dog and cat food, or in, in fish food, I think that's actually a thing that needs to be considered. But mm. I'm not too worried about my little beta that eats six tiny little pellets a day is causing a huge problem. But you add that little beta to millions of others, and it's not nothing. And I think that's part of the message here, is you take um, what seems like a small thing, the food that you um, feed your pets, and you multiply it by very large numbers. Like I said, the 163 million cats and dogs in the United States, right, it ends up being a big impact. So for all the inputs and outputs Greg Oaken included, there is one important factor missing from this story. It's poo. I just sort of did some, again, some simple math. All right, well, we have 163 million cats and dogs. How much do they poop every day? And then how much mass does that end up being? It ends up being about 30% of the, by mass, as much feces as Americans produce. And if we then think about that as all going into the trash, it would rival the trash production in the United States of the state of Massachusetts. That's a lot of poop. Which is a, a, which is a lot of poop, <laughs> right? Exactly. Now, that calculation does not include kitty litter or the bags that people use to pick up their dog poop or other things, which have their own whole carbon chain. Joe Khan, thank you for being my co-pilot on RN's Science Friction this episode. My pleasure, Natasha. It's been very good having you. Thanks also to studio engineer John Jacobs. And catch our sister podcast, All in the Mind, in a recent fun episode they climbed inside your dog's head. Does your dog really love you? How would you know? Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Email us from our website and tell your friends about the podcast. And... 